When we hear anything about nuclear, it's generally nuclear weapons, nuclear reactors, communities discovering that they've been contaminated by mismanaged nuclear manufacturing processes or the ever-growing amounts of highly radioactive nuclear waste that are contaminating the planet. But we rarely hear that the entire nuclear fuel chain begins with uranium mining, which leaves behind its deadly waste in abandoned mines throughout the West, especially on Navajo Nation land. And the danger these closed mines, this waste, pose is nowhere near over, which you understand when you hear someone who has been dealing with these issues for years tell you... With the threat of uranium mining again because of the domestic uranium mining incentives that the Trump administration is trying to negotiate with the uranium companies. And here on Navajos, too, we're still battling a uranium company now called Nugen, formerly Hydro Resources Incorporated. You know, these are the same companies. They change hands, they change faces, but in reality, you know, the monster is continuing to hurt our people, to even damage our DNA. It's a form of genocide. When you hear something like that from someone who really knows, and then learn that as of 2019, in a study of pregnant Navajo mothers and their infants, more than one quarter of these women show elevated levels of uranium in their bodies, you begin to understand the perverse, pervasive nature of the entire nuclear fuel chain, and how, from uranium mining to weapons to waste, it all leads back to that dangerous, uncomfortable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we cover the story of the Navajo birth cohort study, which has shown that over one quarter of the Navajo Nation women and many of their babies who were enrolled in this study had elevated levels of uranium in their bodies. Anna Rondon, program director for the New Mexico Social Justice and Equity Institute, provides the perspective of the Navajo people and explains some of the cultural and historic challenges faced by researchers trying to collect medical data. Then, Dr. Johnny Lewis, director of the Navajo Birth Study Cohort and so much else, provides the medical story of what was and is being researched, what has been discovered thus far, and what's ongoing for this crucial study into the health impact of exposure to radioactive uranium. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than is being voted on in the U.S. elections today. All of it coming up in just a few moments. 
Today is Tuesday, November 5th, 2019, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In Japan, the northeast part of the country continues to be hard hit by flooding, high waves, and landslides, and that includes the area around the radioactive remains of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station. 340,000 people were told to evacuate Fukushima over landslide fears after flooding. No word in Japanese mainstream media about the possibilities of the spread of radiation because of the flooding. However, we did learn this week that during Hurricane Hagibis, 91 bags of contaminated Fukushima soil that had been so-called decontaminated had been washed away in the typhoon. 25 of those bags have been found empty with their contents nowhere to be found. The bags of contaminated soil in so-called interim storage sites can be anywhere from lightly contaminated to over 100,000 becquerels per kilogram, with no declared top limit for contamination. So not only do we know what was in those 25 bags that were found empty, but there's an untold amount of radioactivity from damaged storage bags that cannot be traced. As we record this episode, the Meteorological Agency in Japan has predicted another seven inches of rain over the next 24 hours. And speaking of the Olympics, the Australian Olympics Committee has been urged to inform its athletes and team members about the ongoing health effects of the 2011 Fukushima nuclear reactor disaster for those planning to attend the 2020 Tokyo Games. Tillman Ruff, a public health expert who co-founded the Nobel Peace Prize-winning international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, or ICANN, in their Melbourne branch, said he had written to the Australian Olympic Committee to warn that levels of radioactivity in certain areas could be above the recommended maximum permissible exposure level. This adds to the warnings of 60 Minutes Australia, asking that the Fukushima Olympics be canceled due to radioactive contamination. Six women's softball games and one baseball game are planned for Fukushima City. And the Olympic torch run, which will start next March, is scheduled to begin in Fukushima Daiichi to run through the exclusion zone and stick around for three days. At least Australia is getting some straight information on this deadly, looming problem. In the U.S., Florida Power and Light wants to run the Turkey Point nuclear reactors for 80 years. Note that all U.S. nuclear reactors were initially licensed for 40 years because in the minds of the people who designed and built them, that was how long they could be operated safely before decay and embrittlement of the containment vessels from the constant bombardment of nuclear pieces would render them unsafe to operate. And Turkey Point has had its problems. However, The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has moved a key step closer to allowing another 20-year extension on the operation to keep the plants running until 2050. In Massachusetts, Attorney General Maura Healey has asked the U.S. Appeals Court to put the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's approval of the license transfer for the shuttered Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station on hold until her lawsuit which charges the Commission with violating the Atomic Energy Act and several other provisions in their own regulations, by approving Pilgrim's license transfer from Energy Corporation to Holtec International without providing the Commonwealth with a meaningful opportunity to participate in the process. 
And in Southern California, a San Diego Superior Court judge has rejected a request from environmental activists and groups to halt the transfer of spent fuel at the San Onofre nuclear power plant from wet to dry storage on the basis that the canisters are not safe, they've already been damaged in the loading, and each one contains approximately the same amount of radioactivity as was released at the Chernobyl accident in Ukraine. Internationally, India confirms there has been a cyber attack on their nuclear power plant in Kudankulam. The European Union has voted to ease Japanese food import restrictions. Because, hey, the Olympics. And a new study on U.S.-Russian nuclear war shows that a war triggered by one low-yield nuclear weapon could lead to 91.5 million casualties in the first few hours. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. In this latest preview of the upcoming zombie apocalypse, one million cannibal ants trapped in a Soviet nuclear bunker have escaped. The colony, discovered in Poland, had no way out of the nuclear hellhole and no food source other than each other. So, in the ant version of Lord of the Rings, featuring Soylent Green, they made do with the supplies on hand. Mmm, brains. No word if potential radiation exposure made them that way. Scientists from the Polish Academy of Sciences, in their wisdom, then provided these nuclear cannibals with the means of leaving the bunker, which they did in droves. And now, they're out in the world where they could be up to any sort of mischief, replaying their historic roots and encoding it into their DNA for all future generations of these little atomic ants. It's no time for a picnic in Poland. And that's why scientists who not only discovered but then released these nuclear cannibal ants, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, it's turning into Thanksgiving here in the U.S. Even if you don't look at the calendar, you can tell from all that pumpkin spice nonsense on grocery shelves. What I am thankful for is you, who are on this nuclear journey with me. From the activists who send me word of what's happening in their parts of the country and the world, to the loyal crew that helps me post the show all over the Internet every week, to the friends I've made, who help me keep my spirits up when the nuclear numbnutsery gets to me. And you, the listeners, who make this weekly endeavor so worthwhile. And of course, I have tremendous gratitude for those of you who choose to donate to this show to help it keep going. Financially speaking, I could not do it without you. Now, we're facing the challenge of a long-planned upgrade of the Nuclear Hot Seat website. We found the right service provider, ID'd the platform we need and a new template, and added better searchability. The challenge, though, is that we need to raise $1,200 to get this work started up and running. As soon as that money has been raised, we can jump into action creating a new, improved website with the goal of having it ready by the end of the year. So if you appreciate hearing the honest, vetted nuclear news on Nuclear Hot Seat, and want to have an easier time accessing all eight and a half years of nuclear information currently in our archive, the time to donate 
is now. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button to send us a donation of any size or to set up a recurring monthly donation of any size. Know that I'm thankful you have allowed Nuclear Hot Seat into your life. I look forward to continuing to produce it for you every week, with your help, of course, and for that, you have my deepest gratitude. Here are this week's featured interviews. The deeply upsetting news that Navajo Nation pregnant women and their babies were found to have elevated levels of uranium in their bodies has been carried by media internationally, a rare instance when nuclear problems on native lands have been so widely covered. To find out more, I spoke with two women who are directly involved with the Navajo Birth Cohort Study. First, Anna Rondon. She is the program director for the New Mexico Social Justice and Equity Institute. Here, she provides an overview of the Navajo Birth Cohort Study, the perspective of Navajo people towards it, and some of the cultural and historic challenges faced by researchers trying to obtain medical data on uranium contamination of the people. Anna Rondon, thank you so much for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for inviting me for a Nuclear Hot Seat show. I love this show, this program. Very valuable. Thank you. Let's start out with the recent news about the Navajo birth cohort study. First of all, what is the study and what has been your position on it? Well, the study began, it was initiated through the Henry Waxman, a congressman who um, fell upon a, an article about uranium mining issues on Navajo Nation. And he went to Washington, made calls, and wanted to have the hearing on um, uranium issues. As a result of that, there was to be, based on testimonies and different Dene people, a lot of grandmothers, Dene grandmothers traveled to Washington, D.C. Most of them were widows due to the uranium mining, and the miners passed away. But then the thousands of pounds of uranium tailings and water being contaminated, so they decided to have a five-year plan. And as a result, now a U.S. EPA, uh, several other federal agencies got together, met out here in um, Gallup, New Mexico, and different locations. So this was in the 2007. And as a result, there was funding that was sought after to do the initial study. So it came from the Center for Disease Control, and we had a contract, the Navajo Department of Health. And so I served as the Navajo Nation Supervisor for the birth cohort study. So I oversaw the Community Health Environmental Research Specialist. So there were five that um, I supervised, and they were the first cohort of Navajo professional researchers that were very familiar with the terrain of the land, the landscape and the social fabric of the people, which is very important, and the ones that were in the heart of the Navajo Nation that served Chinle service area, Indian Health Service, spoke fluent Navajo. Who was eligible for participation in the study, and what specifically was being looked at? To be 
eligible, you would have to have lived on the Navajo Nation at least five years, not consecutively, but at least five years, and to be at least 14 to 34, I believe it was. And so the women would have to follow that qualification and be an enrolled member of the Navajo Nation. Was it only women who were studied at this time? And babies. We recruited women that were prenatal. The fathers were also eligible if they wanted to participate as well. And then, of course, when the baby's born, they would also have the biological uh, specimens given out. And that would be blood and urine samples. And so they would do this like every three months. And they would make appointments. They would go out and meet with the women at their home. And which was a challenge because when we're doing a study of this magnitude on Navajo Nation, where the majority of the roads are dirt roads, primitive roads for vehicles, even some of our community health representatives ride horses to go see their, their patients. Compounded with that and the fact that People living in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. don't really know what the people are up against in terms of doing a study of this nature and the additional resources that is needed to do it correctly and effectively because of the travel. And then, you know, giving incentives for the women to participate because when you have a study, people, you know, have uh, bad memories of studies being done on people of color. So... The community health environmental research specialists, they would have to go through training, human research protocols, and so they would have to get certified in how to conduct themselves also with HIPAA, uh, which is Medical Records Privacy Act. You said that the women were giving samples or they were supposed to give samples every three months. How long did the sampling last? Meaning, how long was each woman studied? Did it take six months, a year, more than one year? It would vary depending on when they were enrolled. Some went up to 12 months, 18 months. And then they would re-enroll again later on, a year or two later, if they had um, gotten pregnant again. The other responsibilities, we call them um, cheers community health environmental research specialist. So the cheers would also have to conduct an ages and stages questionnaire, which is a, a questionnaire to look at development capabilities and disabilities to kind of gauge how the child is developing. So they would do that also at um, different intervals, like three months, six months, nine months, 12 months. And every time they would do the ages and stages questionnaire, they would also keep track and input that data so they could see what are the trends in terms of the learning. The story that came out in the news this week that was so shocking was that of the 781 Navajo women who participated in the study, 26%, more than one quarter of them, meaning approximately 200 women and some of the infants, the number was not provided, were found to have high levels of radioactive uranium in their systems. How 
shocked were you and others on Navajo Nation by these results, or was it expected by you? Well, the information, you know, as we were moving on, like 2016, some of the preliminary information, as such as what was reported in the paper recently, it's just growing and growing because we did see that percentage in 2016, and I'm not surprised on the data that was shared by the Navajo Birth Cohort Study, they provided a fact sheet to um, some of the folks there at the congressional hearing. I'm just happy that it got this exposure, this media, because it keeps continuing to educate the public, our leaders, our decision makers. And also with the threat of uranium mining again because of the domestic uranium mining incentives that the Trump administration is is trying to negotiate with the uranium companies. And here on Navajos too, we're we're still battling uh uranium company now called Nugen, formerly Hydro Resources Incorporated. But you know, these are the same companies, they change hands, they change faces, but in reality, you know, the monster is continuing to, to, to hurt our people to even damage our DNA, it's a form of genocide. You know, now that more than half of the country's water sources are contaminated, um, I think it's, a, it's time that we stand up for safe and affordable drinking water in a safe environment and just keep, continue that fight uh, with our voices to our leadership and for the folks on the front line of these uranium tailings. It's outrageous that on the verge of 2020 that our people are still living with contaminated sites, in particular Redwater Pond Road Community Association, which one of the mothers did participate in the Navajo Birth Cohort study. The stories go on and on, and they need to be continually voiced and so that people can continue to hear the truth that has been covered up for so long. So what are we going to do about this issue of the children, the mothers, the young parents? They also did see that it does skip generations of the exposure, meaning that maybe the the mother who has uranium in her system, the grandfather was a uranium miner. So there still needs to be more studies and correlations, if any, other factors that contribute to uranium contamination. Is the study going to be continuing? Yes, they just recently got $4 million to continue the study on learning disabilities. Now it's going to be a seven-year study on learning disabilities and still enrolling mothers. It's very exciting, but when you compare it to Japan who had radiation exposure study, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg but at least it's tipping. And I really hope that there's ways that we can heal our people with um, our traditional medicine along with consultation with some Western medicine. What, if anything, is possible to do for the children other than at this point just studying them? Oh, well, there's a a partnership with Growing in Beauty, which is under the Navajo Nation Department of Education. They provide services to the families, and so there's a referral survey. But 
I really think there needs to be more intervention um, holistically for the families so that they could be aware and more cognizant of watching their child grow. And also nutrition. A lot of our exposure in terms of not being able to have healthy food is also a contributing factor to, um, you know, lowering your immune system to fight uranium exposure. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for furthering the conversation and deepening the conversation, especially on the DNA damage and who's responsible for that and who's responsible for the poisoning of our people. It's the principal party is the United States federal government who used initially the uranium for war, for weapons. I really feel that if they're looking for a responsible party, this should go back under the Department of Defense. Um, Trillions of dollars is put into the Department of Defense. And for an example, they gave Kuwait $10 billion after they bombed them in the early 90s, 1990s. Why not here in in the United States, the indigenous peoples of this country, you know, the first ones that lived here? And there has to be more organizational movement, I think, now that the people of the United States are being poisoned as well. Um, National movement need to demand clean water and cleanup of these uranium mines. It can be done. We're in a state of emergency, a public health emergency. I believe that studies like the Naval Birth Cohort study is bringing more interest for our young Navajo people that want to pursue medical careers because even our traditional medicine needs to be explored on how can we do a ceremony for our people and, you know, for the world. But with that, we do have resilience, we're strong, we have our stories, we have our songs. As Dene, as a Dene woman, grandmother, mother, auntie, you know, we're the front lines now. We are now become more of the protectors for our communities, not just here, but around the world. Indigenous women are rising up. And these are our children we need to protect. Anna Rondon, thank you so much for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Okay, keep it real. Nuclear Hot Seat is the bomb. That always makes me smile when I hear it from someone else. Anna Rondon is the program director for the New Mexico Social Justice and Equity Institute. To learn more about the medical aspects of the Navajo Birth Cohort Study, I spoke with Dr. Johnny Lewis. She is director Community Environmental Health Program, the Metals Superfund Research Center, Navajo Birth Cohort, ECHO, and so much more. Since correlation is not causality, and as a medical researcher, she maintains rigorous absolute clarity about what can be learned from the data so far and helps us understand what it shows and what may seem logical but has yet to be proven. Dr. Johnny Lewis. Thank you for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. Let's start out with an explanation of what the Navajo Birth Cohort Study is. 
So the Navajo birth cohort study was started in 2010 as the uh, health study that was added to something called the five-year plan, which was a congressional mandate to respond to the fact that 500 uranium mines had been abandoned on Navajo Nation and no one had done any health studies in spite of repeated requests from Navajo Nation and the communities. So in 2010, they put out a request for a health study on neurodevelopment to see how these exposures to communities were affecting the health of future generations. And that was something that had been a longstanding question that we heard uh, when we were conducting other research. And so we competed for that and got the award. Who is eligible for participation in this study and how were they enrolled in it? To participate in the study, women have to have a confirmed pregnancy. They have to have lived on the Navajo Nation at any point for at least five years. And they have to be willing to have their child followed up through birth to one year of age. This was the initial birth cohort study. And that was funded through the Centers for Disease Control as a cooperative agreement. It also included IHS and the Navajo Department of Health. And the um, Southwest Research and Information Center was also a sub-award to us. So the first family was enrolled um, at Chinle Hospital in 2013. So the original birth cohort was a collaborative cooperative agreement was funded through the Center for Disease Control. It also included the Indian Navajo Area Indian Health Service as a partner and the Navajo Department of Health through the, the CHR program, the Community Health Representative Program. So the IHS hospitals were involved both in the enrollment, also in the biospecimen collection and the medical record review. So to participate, women had to have a confirmed pregnancy. They had to have lived on Navajo Nation for at least five years, and they had to be willing to have their child followed through birth and through the first year of life. We collected biospecimens. We collected urine and blood samples to confirm exposures and also to look as some of the molecular mechanisms that might be associated with any of the developmental issues that we were looking at. You talk about the initial study. Were there results from that and have there been studies since or was that one extended? The initial study funded by CDC, as I mentioned, only allowed us to follow children through one year of life. And that is a very short time to try and see any neurodevelopmental issues, for example, that might take much longer to develop. So um, we had made a commitment with Navajo Department of Health to extend the cohort once it was um, developed to be able to track development over a much longer time course. In 2016, we also were able to apply to be part of the environmental influences on child health outcomes. And that is a national study that's funded by the Office of the Director at NIH. 
we were fortunate enough to be selected to be one of the sites for that. And that will now allow us to follow up on the children through age five. And for those who have already re-enrolled in the last couple of years, we'll actually be able to go to age nine at this point. And that will give us a much better chance of picking up anything that is longer in development and manifestation. Disruptions in development can sometimes not be detected until those children are in school or even in their teens. So we're very pleased that we're now going to be able to get much more information on development. The initial birth cohort ended in August of 2018, and we are still in the process of analyzing all of the results from that. One of the things that we did see very early and confirmed with every successive um, year of analysis that we did was that the women and the dads, the moms and the dads, both had much higher levels of exposure to uranium than you would see in the U.S. population. So CDC does monitoring for a range of environmental toxicants, including metals, in the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which they update every few years. And we can use that as a picture of what the rest of the population of the U.S. looks like, and we can compare to it. The NHANES, NHANES is the acronym for that, NHANES data do not mean that something is at a safe level. It just is a reflection of what the U.S. population looks like with respect to that exposure. The story came out in the news a few weeks ago that of the 781 Navajo women who have participated in the study thus far, more than one quarter of them, and to my math, that's approximately 200 women, and some of the infants were found to have high levels of radioactive uranium in their systems. What does this mean in terms of their long-term health, and were you surprised by the magnitude of these results? Yeah, I can't say that I personally was surprised by the results. I was surprised to see them so broadly spread across Navajo Nation. We had done a previous very small community and seen a similar percentage of um, the participants who had uranium that was higher than the U.S. population as well. And then um, CDC had done another subset in the sort of central part of Navajo Nation and the state of New Mexico Department of Health also had done another assessment independently and gotten about the same thing. And what we typically, all three of those studies and now the birth cohort have confirmed is that about 25 to 35%, it's 25% of the women roughly, and 35% of the men enrolled in these studies have had concentrations of uranium in their urine that exceeded the 95th percentile from that NHANES sample that I mentioned. And so you would expect, um, if it looked exactly like the U.S. distribution, you would expect 5% of our participants to exceed. And instead, we've seen this much higher number. With respect to the infants, it's very hard to know how to compare those. There aren't other large-scale samples that we can use for that comparison. And so I just want to be clear, we don't know 
how babies should necessarily look relative to those adult numbers. We would not, however, expect to see urine, uranium as high as 95%, that figure that exceeds the 95% of the U.S. population. When we started the study, there was even a debate as to whether or not uranium would cross the placental barrier. So in newborns, we weren't sure what to see. We did not expect to see something that high. I want to make two caveats for the infant data. Number one, when we talk about the concentration of these metals in urine, we normalize to control for the kidney function or the level of hydration, if you will. So we normalize to a protein that's normally found in urine creatinine. In developing kidneys in these infants, though, that's not an easy thing to do because kidneys that are developing tend to spike and put off, you know, large amounts than none. And hydration is, you know, a different issue. And so we actually don't correct those values. But the key point, the key take-home message of that is that these babies do have evidence of high exposures to uranium already at birth. And as we go on, we now have been looking annually every year for the children that re-enrolled in the last three years. So we don't have a complete package for any of the children, but we now have data on children, on groups of children from birth through age five. And what we see is increasing exposure over those early childhood years for both uranium and arsenic. And one of the things you mentioned, radionuclide, the work that we have done has primarily focused on the chemical toxicity of uranium as a metal. In these mine waste piles that remain in these communities, these are what's left after the uranium has been extracted. So this is the mine waste. The uranium occurs naturally in combination with many other toxic metals. And all of those metals will also be in the mine waste. So when these piles are left near communities, the community is exposed not, or potentially exposed at least, not only to the uranium, but to whatever other metals are in that waste material. And we typically analyze a suite of about 27 metals and then look to see what kinds of patterns of exposure we can pull out because these metals could all interact. They could have synergistic actions where you see increased toxicity because there are two that are acting together on similar systems, or they could actually act antagonistically. They could block each other's actions, or they could just have additive effects. But they often are going to work through the same mechanisms and on the same target systems. So that's why we look at all of the metals. You spoke about developmental problems that could show up in the babies as they grow. What are some of the diseases and developmental problems associated with exposure to uranium mining waste, not just in the babies, but also in their mothers? This will be the first comprehensive study on children. And you know, part of the reason we're doing it is we really have no idea what to expect. We've been looking now in three generations, Navajo participants. We started with older people, 
older, meaning average age of 55, so not elderly, but older than the birth cohort. And what we found looking in those participants was a higher risk for cardiovascular disease, which was somewhat of a surprise. We started that study because the community came to us with concerns about kidney disease, knowing that uranium was a kidney toxicant, knowing that they were drinking many of them from unregulated wells that could be contaminated either because of the mining or just because put into uranium-bearing formations. And so we had about 1,300 participants in the eastern portion of Navajo Nation in that first study. And indeed, we saw kidney disease increased for people who had exposures that also included the time of active mining. So they grew up in mining camps, for example. They had occupational exposures, possibly. Although most of the people with occupational exposures in these communities had already died of lung cancer if they had worked in the mines at the time that we started the study. We had very few people who actually had occupational exposures. So if you control for that mining era exposure, and then looked at just people whose only exposure was community activity, normal activities that they carried out in their day that brought them into contact with the waste, like herding livestock in the vicinity of these mine sites, living in proximity to many of these mine sites. Those kinds of activities led to an increased likelihood of cardiovascular disease and an increased likelihood of multiple chronic diseases if we looked at kidney disease, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease as a unit. They had a higher likelihood of getting two or even three of that constellation of diseases. We also had heard a lot about concerns that clinicians had about immune dysfunction that they were having to much more aggressively treat infectious disease, that they were seeing more children with severe combined immunodeficiency. And so we wanted to look at function of the immune system in our population as well. And in the older population, we saw a much higher prevalence of self-reported autoimmune disease. And we also then, for everything that we do, not just for the autoimmune disease. We go back and check medical records, and then we also go back and look for mechanisms in laboratory studies that would support what we saw in the population. So when we talk about our results, they're generally not based solely on epidemiologic associations, but they also incorporate mechanistic studies in the lab, sometimes using pure metals that seem to be producing the effect and seeing if we get the same effect in animal models or in cell systems. And other times we will incubate serum from people in our studies with model systems to see if the serum generates the same kind of response. I notice in all of this that you haven't been talking about cancer. And it was stated in the AP article that, quote, no large-scale studies have connected cancer to radiation exposure from uranium waste. If that is so, why is it so? And what, if anything, is being done about it? Yeah, that's a great question. It is very difficult to do studies on cancer in these Native communities largely because of distrust 
there's been a lot of abuse of research in Indigenous communities in general. Navajo Nation in particular has a moratorium on genetic analyses at all. And that is one of the main ways that we look at cancer and that we do cancer research. So the alternative is that we try and make those connections by self-report. It's a very uncomfortable thing for people to talk about in Indigenous communities. There's not a word in most Indigenous languages for cancer. And it's something that is just a very difficult thing to talk about, even among families. It's not something that we have done a lot of research on at all. We do have tumor registries that we've looked at. And there are indications of elevated cancers, but we can't really connect the tumor registry data with exposures. And that would take the other kinds of studies that we haven't done. We are in the process, um, actually, we just yesterday submitted a proposal to see if we can develop um, receptful ways of doing that type of research in Indigenous communities. There is also now a policy on genetic analysis so the communities can have more control over how genetic analyses are conducted and what happens to the data. A lot of the distrust around genetics comes from an abuse that occurred at Arizona State University. This was over 20 years ago. It involved samples from Havasupai tribe, and they mistakenly got picked up by investigators other than those who had collected them originally. They were analyzed for outcomes that were not in the original consent form, and it led to a real destruction of trust. There were actually several lawsuits that resulted from that, and that was when the moratorium on genetic research in Navajo began. With the development of this policy, which it appears is in draft form right now and likely to be voted on by tribal council sometime in the coming year. And once that is in place, it would reverse the moratorium and we would have to look at designing studies that would follow the protocols that are laid out. So right now, we are not able to make any direct links between exposure and cancer, although it is a major concern in the communities. When this story hit, It seemed to be spread very widely. What has been the impact of the information going out about Navajo women and babies, uranium exposure, and having it so widely disseminated? I think that it has been very much a surprise to a lot of people. Our laboratory actually was not connected in that story. It was based in um, some talking points that we had provided for another purpose, and we're, we're very pleased that someone from IHS had introduced it into the hearing. But I think it's been difficult for people to kind of trace back where the the source was. So we are just now starting actually to get requests from people to talk about this. We'll see. The um, hearings initially were also primarily looking at amendments to RICA, which is a bit of a different issue than what we're 
actually conducting our research on that has a lot more to do with occupational and downwinder exposures. And while some of our results could play into the downwinder side, we are not specifically looking at the occupational exposure in these studies. What is next for these women and their babies, specifically the ones who have been found with such high levels of uranium in their bodies? We provide everyone with the results from their biomonitoring. We have done a lot of discussion with clinicians about what we find. We have very strong relationships with the hospitals and and the pediatricians in IHS and make sure that they're informed of what we're actually inserting into medical records now, which is the result of the biomonitoring. When we see these really high values, we also make sure that everyone gets information on where they could possibly be coming from. Part of the problem is we are not completely clear on what the primary exposure routes are. We started these studies thinking that drinking water was going to be the major source of exposure. That has not turned out, in most cases, to be the the main source of exposure. Right now, we have most of the population in our current studies um, actually using regulated water sources. Now, there are a couple of those water sources that are not, at this point, meeting EPA drinking water standards. They are during they are going through a compliance process. So there is some contribution from there, but it does not account for what we see population-wide across the Navajo Nation. We are coming to believe that there is much more likelihood for inhalation exposure than we previously thought, and that it is much less spatially organized than we thought. We originally started this, and based on the results of our first study in the eastern part of Navajo Nation, which was the area that we were working in was pretty heavily mined, and we thought we would see, as we spread out over all of Navajo Nation, very much pockets around the mining districts and pockets of exposure that linked well with the mining district. But that has not turned out to be the case. We can have two homes side by side where one family has very high concentrations of uranium and the people in the adjacent property are not elevated at all. When we look across all of Navajo Nation, there are different patterns of exposure that occur. And I just want to also get on the record that 25 to 30% of the participants in our studies have very low exposures to any metals at all. So 27 metals, they're in the bottom end of the distribution for every single one. And I think that is the good news that we saw, because I think there is a fear that everyone living on Navajo Nation has these horrible exposures and is at risk. That's not what we're seeing. We see another 25 to 30% that tend to be at the upper end of the distribution for multiple metals. And typically that's for somewhere between 10 and 12 metals. And then we have varying patterns in between there so that overall we see about six unique patterns of exposure. We are in the process of looking at how those patterns of mixtures influence the outcomes that we're most interested in. 
And that is going to take us some time to actually resolve. And I think that's the, the frustration for us and also for all the communities that are involved in research is that it does tend to be a slow process. You know, we, we know what we saw in the older population, and that certainly helps us to focus on what we look at in now the parents in the birth cohort study and the children in the birth cohort study. We know what diseases are at high occurrence or high prevalence on Navajo Nation. And so that also um, helps to start our focus on what we look at. There's so much information here. I know that some of the listeners are going to want to learn more. Where can they go to learn about the Navajo Birth Cohort Study or perhaps access the data? We do publish in peer-reviewed literature. That's not always the most user-friendly place to look for information. People can also call our office. We have a toll-free number that is 877-545-6775. If there are women who are interested in enrolling in the study, they can call that number and we can connect them with someone in their area on Navajo Nation. Or they can also um, check with the pediatric or OBGYN units in the Tuba City, Chinle, or Gallup hospitals. And we probably will be adding a few more hospitals over the next year, as well as we start um, moving into the next phase of the study. Um, We also have a lot of artwork that we have had connected to the study that maybe makes it a little more approachable. Um, We have an artist on staff, Mallory Kataki, who has worked with us for several years and um, helps us to try and, and put things into digestible formats so we can get information to people if they give us a call and tell us what they're interested in. The work you're doing is so crucial to understanding the long-term impact of this toxicity and this horrible uranium pollution on the people of Navajo Nation. And I want to thank you, Dr. Johnny Lewis, for not only the work that you have been doing and continue to do, but for also being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you very much, Libby. I appreciate your interest and hope it can be of help to the people who hear it. Dr. Johnny Lewis. She is the Director, Community Environmental Health Program, Metals Superfund Research Center, and Navajo Birth Cohort ECHO. We'll have a link up to Dr. Lewis and to Anna Rondon on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 437. Activist shout-out! Hey, all you aspiring filmmakers, you know I'm talking to you. Listen up, because this is important. The International Uranium Film Festival, based in Rio de Janeiro, is now accepting submissions for next year's festivals. Documentaries, dramas, shorts, animations, whatever you've been working on, the time to finish it up and get it out is now. The deadline for submissions is January 1st, 2020, and the festival will take place from May 21st to 31st in Rio de Janeiro and also October 15 to 18 in Berlin, Germany. Of course, we will link up to their website on our website, nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 437. 
Here's today's final thought. Former Russian Premier Mikhail Gorbachev worked with former U.S. President Ronald Reagan to pass the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, which seriously cut down the possibility of nuclear war. That's what the two men were working for. Unfortunately, the INF Treaty no longer exists, and Mikhail Gorbachev was speaking to the BBC recently when he said, As long as weapons of mass destruction exist, primarily nuclear weapons, the danger is colossal. All nations should declare, all nations, that nuclear weapons must be destroyed. This is to save ourselves and our planet. Would that the people in power would listen. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 5th, 2019. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear International, simplyinfo.org, baltimorepostexaminer.com, nhk.or.jp, newsweek.com, bloomberg.com, rt.com, the Miami Herald, truthout.org, publicherald.org, Cape Cod Times and the reporting of Christine Legere, San Diego Union Tribune, and the completely captured, neutered, and despicable at times, such as this week, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is now available on all your favorite podcast platforms. So what are you waiting for? Go to your favorite, subscribe. Thanks for listening and joining with Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world in 123 countries on six continents and counting. Now, we depend on your input to help us understand where the story is and how to get it right. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Sorry, don't use Facebook. It goes by too fast and it's too easy to miss. And besides, I don't know that Mark Zuckerberg is really going to enjoy reading it all that much. And don't forget that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We will be really grateful for your support and that much closer to redoing the website. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019, Libby, Halevi, and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that nuclear war does not begin with the weapons going off. It ends with the weapons going off. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.